news about film. Uh, today we're going to be talking about The Curse of Frankenstein, uh, Hammer Studios' 1957 adaptation of Mary Shelley's classic novel, Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, uh, which pretty much everybody knows what Frankenstein's about. Victor Frankenstein, a young student, dedicates his life to creating life from the remains of dead human beings. Uh, in this adaptation, uh, Victor is played by legendary British character actor Peter Cushing, and yes. the film is directed by Terence Fisher, who would go on to direct a lot of different movies for Hammer. Uh, but let's open, like we always do, with our overall thoughts. What did you guys think of The Curse of Frankenstein? Well, I think it is terrific. And I'm surprised that I, I think I may have enjoyed this the most of the three of us. Wow. I may have liked a horror movie more than you two. Mm -hmm. I'm stunned. Um, I, I really loved it. This is my second outing with it. Um, I had watched it some time ago uh, while I was at school last year. I can't even remember which semester, but not too long ago. Uh, and I, I just really, really enjoyed it. Um, I think I think I was drawn to it then because I loved uh, Cushing and Lee for what they had done in Star Wars and Lee really? for his Lord of the Rings work. So wow. I wanted to see more of their roots. Uh -huh. And I... Boy, was I in for a treat. Um, they're both terrific. But uh, as I said in my most recent review, I think the, the real standout performance is, is Justine, uh, who, who becomes a, a pretty important character in this adaptation. But uh, I think this works really perfectly in the confines of its budget and its production, um, especially if we think of criticism and, and our ratings out of five as relative to every production and the, the constraints and limitations and, and framework within which they are created, I think this is a, this is a stellar product outcome of, of all of those things. I really like the style of it. I think the colors are really nice. They don't, they don't pop so much that it's like some, some demi-musical, but there are, there's some flavor there without it being like, I don't know, dreadfully gaunt because it can be because it's a dark story. Um, so I found that engaging and I, I think all of our actors are, are pretty great. I don't think there's a single bad performer in this. So, and I think the, the makeup, uh, for, for our creature is really, really, really good. Yeah. Like reasonably effective yeah. to a similar extent as something like Nosferatu is effective. Like, I think, I think it's really great. Um, four out of five, I think it's terrific. I'm, I mean, I, I think the only drawback is there's a lot of exposition, I guess. Mm -hmm. But uh, outside of that, I think it's great. I, I really loved it. I, I had difficulty finding any problems with it. All right. Mitchell? Well, I have hit the middle ground once again. Center griller <laughs> supremacy. And Count, yeah. Count Dooku and Grand, Grand Moff Tarkin are great in it. Yes. Um, honestly, what would Hammer do without Peter Cushing? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, I feel like this is a film where the less you know, the better. Like, if you just know that it's low budget and that's it, that's, like, the best you can do. Because the more you know about the actual story and the mo more you know about what other films could do with adapting the original story, the worse this film comes across. This just feels like a cheap kind of replacement. Um, and, I and I feel like that, I mean, that's thinking about it in the context of knowing other things. But as a film by itself, this is my setup, okay? So as a film by itself... <laughs> Uh, I think it does a great job. I really like the atmosphere. I think it's done perfectly. I don't think there's really anything I would change, honestly. I don't think having a bigger budget would have done it any favors. I think every single scene super deep. There's, like, things going on, like, all the time in, in every dimension. And I think that's really hard to pull off a lot of the time. Um, lent more to the set pieces more than the actual cinematography because the cinematography is only creative to me in a few places. Um, there's a couple scenes which are just, like... When it comes to like what's actually happening to me, uh, for me, and I just the clopping of the horses and stuff, I feel like the, the atmosphere already kind of sets itself up. I don't feel like that we don't really need to know like a whole lot of the bubbling and stuff in the lab for like ten minutes straight for me. Uh, okay. It doesn't really hold up too well. Just having literally nothing, I, you know. And I, I, but Cushing moving around is interesting, and like okay. you know him talking with Paul. I mean the conversation parts are extremely intriguing. And the performances are great, um, and all pretty much all around. And um, you know, I think the monster is great. I don't think there's really much you could change with that. So, really, just the the main parts of the actual story that are portrayed are great. 
And I think the changes that are made to accommodate the budget and to accommodate, you know, certain creative hindrances, I think, are are just fine. I don't think there's any problem with it at all. So I gave it a three and a half out of five. I think it's a it's a great story. I mean, I think the original. There's nothing comparable to the original story. Um, all those years ago, I read the story and I I forget parts <laughs> of it, but. Um, for the most part, just the way that the story builds up and everything, it's just there's nothing to compare it with. But I think this is a, a just a fine rendition. I think this is definitely something I'd recommend. And, uh, you know, I think Peter Cushing pretty much steals the show for me. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, this is kind of unusual because I believe I'm the one who gave this film the lowest rating of the three of us. I gave it a three out of five. Uh, and I think this is actually the first time Christian has ever rated a film that I've recommended higher than I have rated it. Uh, yeah. So this this episode is kind of making cookie pocket history, and um, maybe also the first time that the person who picked the film gave it, gave the, it the lowest, lowest rating. Yeah. 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 Um, but that being said, a three out of five represents a good solid film to me, and I do think this is a good, really solid film. Um, it's 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 a great runtime. It's only like eighty six minutes, which is a great little get in, tell the story, get out yes. window, yeah. um, especially for a lower budgeted horror movie like this. It's got some really great character actors in it, um, beautiful sets. Even though a lot of them are quite small and you can feel the budget, they really work with what they have. Uh, and a lot of the sets are actually reused and redressed from other scenes, and I can never tell. Uh, it's That's also the case in Horror of Dracula, which we've all seen, where a ton of the sets in that are... are there's, they, they basically only, only had like three sets and everything is redressed from scene to scene. You can't tell because they're great at production design and changing things from scene to scene. Um, I do think, in comparison to later films that Hammer would make, this is just kind of a a medium on, on the rank for me. I actually prefer some of the sequels in their Frankenstein series to this first film for what they do with the character of Dr. Frankenstein and what they do with those concepts that are introduced in the book. Um, rather than just rehashing on it, they go in very interesting directions, which I think kind of make this film look a little bit limited. Uh, but at the same time, it's small, but it's incredibly entertaining within that small width. And so I really would recommend it for somebody who's looking for a different take on Frankenstein, because I think I think a lot of people are used to kind of Boris Karloff clomping around with his rectangular head and his big boots, and they're used to you know, Victor's, it's alive, it's alive, and, and this is, like, a very kind of, a very different, like, almost regal costume drama approach to the premise that I don't think you see in a lot of other places. Um, but I actually, I want to talk about how this movie, as, as I've mentioned, is one of the very first examples of Hammer horror. Uh, Hammer was a British film studio who existed before the 50s, but with this movie, they really put their name on the map uh, as a producer of horror movies, and they made a ton of other horror movies until the 70s. So I wanted to talk a bit about what you guys think are the hallmarks of Hammer Horror, and why films like this might have been so successful during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Well, I think the, the most obvious is, I'm pretty sure this is one of, if not their first color film, um, and this is being in direct contrast to Chaplin where he's like, yeah, there's sound, but we, we got to have the silent bits in there. This is like <laughs> color in every single scene. And it's not, it, it's all realistic though. It's like, you know, practical use of color. It's not just like, we're going to have red light and it's like creep show. It's like a comic book, you know? And uh, I really appreciate that. And I think that definitely helps. And then with that, the gruesomeness and the, the actual horrific moments are, very impactful for the 50s like you know there's there's some scary stuff that happened like in the 20s 30s 40s but once you put color in the equation that really brings it to life for a lot of people um on top of the actual good performances and the general grounded nature of everything that's going on um this does not feel very far away this feels very close and i think just the the tone and the actual visual aspects are like the major parts so that makes this really impactful um, I mean, just, just seeing the creature getting shot is like, just nobody's like, most of the audience had never seen anything like that before, probably, unless they were actual film connoisseurs, saw something early that Zach probably knows about that I don't, but, <laughs> but yeah, those are the main aspects for me, definitely. Yeah, I, I very much agree with the color point, which I, I sort of mentioned in my opening comments, but, um, 
I'll also take our audience behind the curtain a little bit. We were having a short discussion before we hit the record button, (laughs) and uh, Zach informed me that this was initially an X-rated film, EGAD, because it does some apparently really risque things for the time period it was in, I guess, because, uh, Zach, you mentioned because Victor was adulterous. Yes, um, that too. um, Amongst amongst other reasons. Um, And... I don't know. I, I I'm so desensitized because I feel like I've seen everything now. But um, <laughs> we we can I, I review think... incoming. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, but uh, I I think they they cross those boundaries purposefully and not just because they can, and um, they all serve the story really well. So um, you know I I think it's it's definitely one of those those things that happens to do certain things first. So. It'll always hit an audience harder if it's their first experience with a yeah. with a certain approach or aesthetic. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, you guys have totally hit the nail on the head here with the color. Um, of course, there were some horror films and science fiction films in color before this, uh, and black and white horror movies had made, made use of color before to emphasize specific bloody moments. There are a couple different films from the... 40s that feature blood in like one specific scene where it's red but this movie really does make use of color in an extremely lavish way everything is is quite saturated and and really does draw your eye uh mitchell you mentioned like the different vials and the chemicals and things in the lab where it's not like this is my clear yellow serum and this is my white serum and like (laughs) it's like this is my bright neon green (laughs) bubbling liquid yeah bright red liquid what does it do I don't know, but it's mm-hmm. it's cool to look at. And it really does have that kind of... It, it, it looks like a painting in a lot of ways, almost. I, I mean, it's not Demi, but, you know, it's it does have that extremely vibrant look and feel that's would have been so unique for a horror movie at the time. And additionally, this features some of the first... Um, what would later go on to be referred to as Kensington Gore, uh, which was another big trait of, of Hammer films, um, because they were some of the first horror films to introduce uh, sex and violence... Uh, into into horror. Uh, so we have those aspects of Victor being an adulterer, which would later get much more explicit in other Hammer films. Right. One of the other traits of Hammer is the ever-plunging necklines. But um, oh, okay. the, the, the scene where uh, the creature gets shot in the face, Mitchell, would yes. have been so shocking at, at the time, especially that bright red splash of blood, um, which is not what actual human blood looks like, but just seeing that red on screen would have been really horrifying for an audience uh, and, and I think that's one of the maybe one of the big appeals of the time yes it was x-rated but it felt like you were seeing something more frightening and more forward than anything else you'd see in the cinema I think in a way these early Hammer films were almost like the were to the 50s what the Saw movies would be to like the early 2000s where they have that like I gotta see what they're gonna do how are they gonna push the envelope further they've got that kind of appeal to them Mm-hmm. Uh, Mitchell, you mentioned the original book, so I do want to talk a little bit further about this film as an adaptation of Frankenstein. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though it is a loose adaptation of Mary Shelley's novel, how do you think it holds up as, as an adaptation of the book? And do you think it has something to say reg- in regards to the themes of the book, or do you think it just totally goes off-road and does its own thing? I think it's uh, somewhere in between. It's definitely a reinterpretation. It's not an adaptation it's it's more like a coppola kind of thing um in this way and uh sorry i don't mean to compare okay coppola different you know okay anyway um the i think the the thing when somebody first reads frankenstein and there's never been a film or never been like this never been told in a medium that somebody's passionate about so they kind of get over enveloped in a lot of the surface things and don't really get into the actual major themes and they kind of go over stylistic with it or they go too much investment into the monster like look at this monster i've never seen a monster in film before and they kind of just get kind of caught up in that um or like talking about like the first adaptations of the book i feel like in this it's more it's more like well obviously it has kind of that hammer you know style to it hammered in there (laughs) but um I, I feel like it, it, it knows about like the actual irony of the, the Victor Frankenstein being the the actual bad boy and the creature kind of being uh, more just one more 
example of his problems is kind of the main thing. The book is way it's so much easier in the book to like lay that out in very subtle cues and kind of give you major hints as to why he's the problem and even actually make you question whether or not he's the real problem because even the creature has its own issues and its own experiences. And this doesn't really explore that that much. It kind of just it kind of makes it more cookie cutter, makes it more like, yeah, Victor's very clearly the, the offender and the creature's kind of just an extension of him being an offender. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And I think it works within the context of the film fine. In terms of actually adapting the book, not really. But like I said, I think the film is pretty contained in that sense. And I think it, it, it presents that pretty well. And I think, you know, having having Victor as a fleshed out character in and of itself is already an achievement. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely not a note for note adaptation, but it does well with the source material. And I think... The, the most noticeable uh, differentiations in focus for me are um, like very clearly making Victor the main character and not taking a ton of time to contemplate how human the creature is. Yeah. The creature is just kind of a monster in this, which I think I think the most interesting thing about the book is is contemplating how human the creature is. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, I could understand seeing that as a drawback, but for me, it's it's so baked into the way uh, this film wants to approach the story that it, that it, I can't count it against uh, the, the filmmakers too much yeah. because, uh, like, like Mitchell said, uh, Victor is really fleshed out in this and is probably, I, I shouldn't say this because the book's perfect, but maybe more interesting than, mm. than in some sections of the book. But um, I think the book's amazing. I've... I think it's the only book I've read in middle, high school, and college. So Where? middle, high school, and college. <laughs> um, and I highly recommend the book yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. literally really everyone. Mm-hmm. It's one of those like, you know, like Frankenstein, To Kill a Mockingbird, <laughs> maybe a couple others up there. But, you know, must, must, must read. Yeah, I think so. Something that struck me on this viewing is that. The book, I think, is very much a story of a man against the creature slash monster slash is he a monster that he creates. And something Mm -hmm. that struck me while watching this adaptation uh, most recently is that this this movie isn't really interested in the creature at all. Despite most people thinking of this as it's a it's a Cushing and Lee movie. It's it's like Lee's first Hammer horror film, and he does have a presence on on screen, and he does give a performance specifically with his one eye that is in a contact lens. He acts a lot with that eye. Yeah, that seriously. Uh, But the the creature himself is only in this for like twelve minutes. He's only in like three scenes. Mm -hmm. Mitchell, I think you're you're accurate in describing the creature almost as a as an extension of of victor in this because this isn't a story of a man versus creature it's the story of it's like a character study of victor um and i think in a lot of ways that kind of taps into anxieties around science at the time um i mean this is this is uh this is uh post nuclear weaponry so Mm -hmm. i think you, you can see this a lot in science fiction films at the time but i think there is a lot of anxiety at this time about uh scientists who prioritize advancement and discovery uh, above all else yeah. uh, and this idea of hurtling towards a goal without any consideration or thought towards the consequences mm-hmm. and I think you do kind of see that in the things that the creature does and even in the way that uh, Victor acts towards the creature once he's kind of considered it a failure where he basically turns it into like a pet that does tricks like yes it can walk around and sit down but like Paul even comments like this is your supreme creature of like superior intellect like it, it, it can't even speak. Like what? What is this? And I, I do think that the movie's really effective in showing that kind of downfall of dedicated scientist to just shell of a man uh, who's hurtling towards goal that he might not even know what it is. And I, I think the whole series does a great job at, at kind of studying that point as well. Because mm-hmm. something the Universal movies, the Universal Frankenstein movies, follow the creature. The Hammer films follow the Doctor, which I think is a much more interesting angle uh, and a- mm-hmm. allows a lot more elaboration on um, what motivations and what ideas lead a person to, to 
do something as, as profane as creating a, a being from stitched together bits of dead bodies and where he would go after that. I see some chin stroking, Christian. Do you disagree? I don't know about the point? Bride of Frankenstein with the blind yeah, guy. Come on, that's exactly Zach. what I was thinking. Come on, Zach. Yeah. And I just, I, I don't think at, at the outset, <laughs> I mean, they're obviously both very, very interesting and rich characters. So it, it's almost an act of futility to, to debate which is better. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I will say I, I really appreciate that this movie, um, I think you were kind of alluding to this act, but I really appreciate that instead of kind of grappling with the morality of, of how much Victor is responsible for the creature's actions, it pretty clearly puts, sets its flag in and Victor is at fault here camp yeah and it, and it but it works yeah. and it I think that's a really it's good that they made that strong decision because it really helps that the film function as a character study of Victor like you said yeah yeah and maybe I should clarify my standpoint on, on the universal films here <laughs> if the Zach universal films if the if the universal films adapted like straight from the book and we had a creature in those films who is kind of the the eloquent, fully rounded character that we have in the books. I would love to see a series elaborating on that concept. But the thing that the Universal movies kind of botch is that after Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, which are pretty much an adaptation of the first book, the the, the creature essentially just becomes like this clomping robot that just growls and goes throughout like seven future movies. And he's just consistently used by other people and becomes a plot device, which um, I think is... A, a, a worse execution of the concept there is uh, one movie the one does there is one movie young frankenstein he isn't he doesn't <laughs> oh, just grumble gosh. around at all put that okay. man down uh, zach well, sure that's not part of the universal horror cycle though <laughs> i just want to i'm gonna butt in one more time zach I'm, uh sorry this but, is what the podcast uh, is about yeah go ahead but yeah, again on zach I, I, yeah <laughs> i think one of the most interesting things about the creature is is grappling with how much his outward eloquence or lack thereof is really an indication of his intelligence or his emotional capacity. So even though he is kind of like, I can't speak to the, the future installments, but I can't yeah. speak to Bride of Frankenstein, even though he is kind of like a, a clomping, growling monster, you still, you still see him react strongly to his reflection and try to make real human connections and have really strong emotional reactions to all of that. So it's almost like an infant, um, experiencing life before it has the capacity or the words to assign meaning to the to the things that that they are feeling so I, I do think like his ability to express himself is kind of separate from his emotional intelligence I guess mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I, I am glad that we have both both takes on the concept um, but I do think we have yet to see an adaptation of Frankenstein that I think does justice to the creature as portrayed in the book. Yeah, I think there are sure. versions that do Victor well, um, but I think pretty much every version hasn't quite hit that kind of central question of humanity that, that the book grapples with around that character of, of the creature. Um, maybe there will be one day, but uh, as of yet, it hasn't happened. <laughs> do it, Zach. Make it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's talk about Peter Cushing uh, and maybe other performers that, that we want to highlight because I know you wanted to point out uh, Justine maybe a little further. I don't know, Christian. But uh, Peter Cushing plays a distinctively cold version of Frankenstein in this film, I think. So I just wanted to ask, what do you think of his performance and maybe what do you think of that take on the character uh, as well as any other characters that you'd like to discuss in this moment? There's definitely a sense of of his his acting other things in this he's definitely got his own little charm and his own little way about of uh you may fire when ready uh, every five <laughs> seconds but uh yep i do think his coldness comes across pretty 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 rigidly pretty uh realistically i think it's it's pretty darn believable when he's like huh woman no and then, and then the woman's like oh, dear. But, 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 but i want to be in touch no no and then and then he just sends her in the room lock all that is super surprising, like the exact same way the gruesomeness is surprising, like Zach said, the adultery and the, you know, just just, you know, casually just locking people in rooms. And then the expression while the while the, the transition, the, the slideshow transition fade goes away and then you see him like, that's I got to do what I got to do for the creature, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and his face. I think he does that maybe three times. And I think it's it's a really cool, actually, probably more than three times. Um, 
he does that at the end with the the shooting as well um but just he and it's a different expression every time too but his insistence and his persistence and everything he says is always so lively and very you know it fills the scene very well i mean it just pretty much just takes everybody's attention he just takes everybody's attention he's totally he's totally riveting his sideburns just oh man like you know and and his dress like uh, i was gonna mention with the visuals um when Ooh, he, yeah. the way he dresses the greens and the browns and the darks really come out a lot better when there's contrasting colors like paul's robe gotta zoom out on paul's robe and things like that <laughs> yeah. but um yeah i think that really works as well so uh yeah i wouldn't i mean i wouldn't change any his performance at all i think he pretty much he pretty much takes the character and runs with it like season one mitchell used to say <laughs> uh season one mitchell my good friend um <laughs> i too think peter cushing is great in this and and zach you mentioned the coldness of his approach to the character and i think that's a good word for it and i think there's sort of two different ways you can approach uh a character in a cold manner you can make them sort of emotionally oblivious um as in they're they're not fully able to sympathize or empathize with other people or you can make them completely and totally aware of how selfish they are but they just don't care and i think cushing is the second one and it is terrific to watch Mm -hmm. um it is just oh oh it's so great i'm so glad george lucas scooped this boy up um it's great he's (laughs) terrific um but i also think um i hope i'm pronouncing this name right uh valerie gaunt's justine is really really good um she's in, in the more dramatic moments with Victor, she's great. And then in the moments where she has to be terrified of the creature, I love the build up to her scream. It's very, very real because you get that moment of shock, but you also get that moment of, of terror and panic. And they're, they're perfectly balanced and uh, a very, very strong performance from her. Mm-hmm. And she's yeah. not just like a curious, you know, dummy. <laughs> she's like yeah. actively intelligent and wants to figure stuff out and like you know it's just that having those contrasting side characters is pretty essential to establishing how terrible victor is yeah and she has a great moment um early in the film where uh there's a knock at the door and you can tell that something's going on between her and victor even before you have that first scene with them together Mm -hmm. because she takes a moment and kind of like adjusts her Mm -hmm. her uh, her outfit and then goes to and it turns out not to be victor if i remember correctly i think it's paul at the door but you still have that moment of i think there there might be some (laughs) some hanky panky going on behind Hmm. the screen behind the scenes here Hmm. um and so she does have some great moments i i think I, I might be referring to the long thing, wrong thing, but I think like this and Horror of Dracula are like her only credits. I don't think she acted in, in a great deal. Um, wow. Yeah, it's it's unusual. Oh. Um, but but Cushing, I think, for me, he You're gives right. the. Those are the only two. Holy cow! <laughs> <laughs> for me, uh, Cushing gives the standout performance here. I think Lee is good, but I don't think Lee is in it enough to really leave uh, an impression on me. But Cushing, he's an actor who's so good at at business. He's good at all the, the little things that a character does in a scene that make them feel like a real person. And in the laboratory, when he's fiddling with equipment or adjusting something, I feel like he there's a purpose to every single thing he's doing. And yeah. I never feel like he's yeah. just doing a random thing. And Cushing, if you look at his scripts, he was an incredibly dedicated actor in terms of detail like his scripts are covered in notes of like okay i have to sit down this way i have to make sure to move my wrist in this way when using this piece of equipment um there's a moment i think it's when he unwraps the hands where he wipes his hand on his lapel and that was that wasn't in the script he added that um and i i think just those little moments add so much to the character and and really bring life to it and and make it Cushing's role I to me there's nobody who plays Frankenstein like Cushing I think it's it's kind of his part in a lot of ways and every other Frankenstein for me is going to be judged based on Cushing's performance here uh, and, and in the later Oof. films in the series um, but I mean I could talk about this film until the cow cows come home but unfortunately we are on a bit of a limit and so it's kind of late for the cows this time of day it is a little late for the cows uh, so any final thoughts on the curse of Frankenstein before we move on to our further segments Definitely recommend it. I think it's a very good uh, interpretation based on the, all the limitations we mentioned. And I think it's, I don't know, it's very unique. And I don't know, man, Peter Cushing is pretty, pretty freaking crazy. I mean, he can just stare at something and hold his belt 
for like five minutes and I'd be intrigued, but you know, <laughs> I don't know, man, it's just really good. And, uh, if you're at all interested in the original story and want to see a new interpretation of it, this is definitely, definitely up there. It's pretty good. Three out of five out of five, 3.5 yes. out of five, I mean, over fractionally. Mm-hmm. What do Victor Frankenstein and Grand Moff Tarkin have in common? They were too proud to evacuate in a moment of triumph. <laughs> you were yeah. setting that one up, weren't you? Yeah. Oh, no, I actually just thought about it like 30 seconds ago. I'm very proud of Whoa. it. Um, anyway, I think this movie's terrific. I gave it a four out of five, and I'm very, very solid on that four. Like, even I, I gave 3.5s, and I, I felt this was a four. I felt it earned all four of those marks very strongly. I don't think the budgetary or technical limitations really impede this much, if at all. I think it's outstanding. As someone with more of a theatrical background, I think uh, people who are more drawn to to performances will get a lot out of this. So I, I highly recommend it to anyone that's read the book, and I recommend the book to absolutely everyone. Yeah, I, I think I've kind of expressed my love for this film already, despite the fact that I gave it a 3 out of 5. I will say, uh, if you're looking to purchase a copy of this film, this is not a sponsored advertisement, but I cannot recommend the Warner Archive Blu-ray enough. Uh, it comes with three different prints of the movie, uh, the wow. 1.85 by 1 American print, the 1.66 by 1 British print, and the open matte uh, 1.37 to 1 uh, television print. Uh, so you really get, and all four of those are in, all three of those rather, are in 4K. Uh, so you really get a lot of bang for your buck uh, with that version, and it's a... Uh, it's not actually that expensive either. So, um, yeah, there are some good versions, but the, the Warner Archive Blu-ray for me is, is the best copy of this film to go after. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. All the so squares and rectangles. <laughs> so wow. let's move on then to the Week in Review. This is a new segment that we added for Season 2 where we talk about media we consumed since the last episode. And this is an interesting Week in Review because since our last episode, we all got together to have a bit of a Stanley Kubrick evening. Uh, we watched 2001 A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, and The Shining. So at the end of the night, uh, we were kind of exhausted. Uh, <laughs> what, did you guys, what did you guys think of 2001 A Space Odyssey, the opener of our night? Oh, this is huge brain. This is, this is mega brain. <laughs> I cannot believe how huge brain this is. There is so much humanity, so not enough monk. There's got to be more monk. I express my disappointment that there's a lack of monkey, but otherwise, this, this there's so much you could say about this film. It literally goes on forever. It hit one of those major philosophical points where it's just like you could divert this in any direction. I mean, Kubrick really knew what he was doing here. Everything is so deliberate. Everything is so like just. Kubrick's got I love his shots okay follow shots and wide shots also and Zach was like when he's seeing the the space and stuff and we're like shut up Zach it's just it's just space and lights (laughs) but seriously this is like you have to see this this is major like there's not a lot that really happens but boy is there a lot behind it this is a this is like a puddle you find in a parking lot and you fall into it and you go into china like it's just it, there's so much to talk about <laughs> wow that's okay. a great metaphor wow thank you well i gave this a five out of five i found a lot to appreciate and enjoy in it but i was also on letterbox the other day and i found a half star review for 2001 that i think gives a pretty solid argument even though i disagree with it i gave this a five out of five star rating and i got a lot out of it i think this review is very interesting i'm gonna play devil's advocate here because i know we all really liked it is this the april fool's one yeah that was posted uh, on first April. yes but i also think it has a good point that's worth considering okay what is the purpose is there any coherent message if it is kubrick's message about the future of humanity what future is that and does he even know it is pure style over substance. Nobody actually likes this film. They just like to be seen liking it. Now, I don't agree with any of this, but I think it's interesting to think about. Um, I I found a lot to like in the style, and I think it's part of its substance is that it is left up to you, in many cases, to build that substance for yourself and what you make of humanity and space and the future. There's There's so much luminous, undefined material there that it it works for anyone who's intellectually curious enough to grapple with those things. Yes. So I gave it a five out of five. But uh, I I would understand if you weren't drawn to this movie, but I would encourage that everyone give it a try. 
Yeah, I, I, I would agree with your, with your point, Christian. I think that the idea of this movie not having a point, um, which is not an uncommon argument. There are a lot of people who've seen this film and go, it's boring and it doesn't have a point. But I think that comes from people who want an, a solid answer from their movies. They want a yes and they want a no and they want this is what this movie means. And I think if you're willing to be patient and you're willing to allow a question mark, if you're willing to allow a certain open-endedness for a movie, you'll get a lot out of this. Because I don't actually think the story is that complicated. The, the complication comes in the interpretive themes of the movie and building off the relatively simplistic story to say, okay, now what does that mean to me? And do I agree with what I think it means? Um, I, I think one of the greatest triumphs of this movie is that it's incredibly long, but its pace sort of lulls you into a hypnotic state where you're kind of going along with the characters on this journey to Jupiter, this journey into the future. So by the time that, uh, the, by the time that uh, Kier Doulet is going through the, the, the Stargate at the end and going beyond the, infinite, the, beyond the infinite, you're kind of in the same situation where you're thinking, oh my goodness, it's full of stars. Where am I going to go now? And it really does put you in that hypnotic what is going on state that the characters are in. This is a five out of five for me as well. This is one of the greatest special effects movies of all time, yeah. one of the best science fiction movies of all time, and one of the best movies of all time. And I think if you call yourself a cinephile or a science fiction fan, you have to see it. Um, even if you don't like it, I think you have to give it a chance at the very least. Um, so yeah, great film. Now, the middle film of our evening uh, was oh perhaps the <laughs> most controversial and the one that featured the most disagreement. We watched A Clockwork Orange, uh, which is notoriously another film released, rated X, uh, to pair with The Curse of Frankenstein, uh, and is <laughs> well. but far more violent and uh, far more uncomfortable than Curse of Frankenstein was, I think. What did you guys think of A Clockwork Orange? This uh. film is very risque kubrick is full-on artiste in this he is going he is showing everything he possibly can to make you hate this alex character and have force force feeding you that everything around him is what's causing him to be the way that he is and that he is that he is doomed he is he is a doomed person and that authority is not going to help him no matter what and that authority is hypocritical and that it's ironic and this is a very heavy-hitting theme that Kubrick kind of ventures towards in other films. Uh, Full Metal Jacket's a pretty more realistic, grounded kind of Vietnam being ironic in and of itself. This is just pure, like, f using fiction to portray as much irony and, and, and convey these real-world themes as much as possible. Um, and I think it works great. And I think, I never read the book. But I like the reversion. Um, kind of not really going to spoil, but there's kind of a. I'm not going to spoil it because I want people to see this. But um, there's kind of a, the hypocrisy keeps layering on itself, and the the more that you hate Alex, the more that you, you just hate Alex as much as you hate the government or hate him more. Or hate the, all up to you, up to interpretation. And I think it's done pretty well. I think there's some parts that are a little aged and overused, but. I think I gave it a four and a half out of five. I think it's a great, it's it's a magnificent Kubrick film. I'm very opinionated and also left up to a, a much audience interpretation. Well, I did not like this. I gave it a two. Um, <laughs> I think when you cross certain boundaries, you have a responsibility to do that for a reason and to, to have a, according payoffs. And I, I'm not sure to what extent I want to get into this because I will spoil it if I if I go all the way, but, uh, I mean, if the message of the movie is that the state created this character, I think that's absurd because I mean, he was like that before the state ever had any direct intervention with him. And if the message is his settings or, or the, the glorifying of his, of his, uh, evil or, or, uh, sexually devious behavior, if if the setting surrounding him glorifies those things, then isn't the film another product of that argument? I don't know. I I think it's it's far too confused for for those boundary crosses to be effective to an audience member. That and I I will acknowledge that I'm much more uncomfortable with these things than than Mitchell and Zach are. But I I I have spent a considerable amount of time trying to trying to logic my way into an appreciation of this film, mm -hmm. and I can't do it. I I don't think. 
This is for Nana at all. <laughs> no. Run away, Nana. I don't think yeah, this please. is for most people, you know? I think it's really horrifying and it made me it made me absolutely ill. And yet I don't think that was the only purpose of this movie, but there just has to be something more to it. And I don't think the message is clear at all. And I think that's different than it being left up to interpretation. So for me, that was a significant enough drawback for me to give it a two. Okay. Um, so I will just open by saying I have read the book and I really enjoy the book. And I also really enjoy this movie. So uh, ladies, uh, run away. Um, but oh I, I think God. that this is a great film. <laughs> I, I really do. I think that this is a great film. And I think that I, I can understand feeling that the movie is unclear. But I feel that the point of this movie is to make the audience ask difficult questions about society, about government, about youth, um, about pop culture. And I think that it recognizes that if it portrays any one thing in the movie as the worst thing, mm -hmm. then the audience will have something to root for and will stop asking questions about one thing. Yeah. If Alex is portrayed as the most evil force in the movie, then the audience is inclined to root for the government. And then they're not going to ask the questions that the author and the director want them to ask about the government. So in order to make them ask the questions about everything, in order to make them cynical, in order to make them suspicious of everything, I think the entire movie has to be bathed in that corruption and that evil. There, there's basically no good people in this movie. Yeah. I mean, I think you could argue that maybe Alex's parents are the, are the closest things to good people that we have the in this film. The priest is okay. And the, the priest is an okay person, yeah. But there are very, very few people in the film that I think you could call good. And I think that's intentional because it, the movie wants to cast doubt on everything in order to allow the audience to come to their own conclusions about those forces. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be difficult. Um, and I think that can be uncomfortable. This is not like a oh, I've got two free hours on a, on a Saturday afternoon, and I'm going to pop on a clockwork orange. Like, this is not a fun movie by any means. You yeah. really do have to kind of, because this will ruin your day, you do have to kind of plan your day around watching this movie, and you really do need to set aside the time to think about it. Um, but I think that when you do think about it, and you consider the questions that it's making, and how there is no true right or wrong in the story, and perhaps no true right or wrong in the reality that the story is reflecting, I, I think the movie's sort of victories and, and, and better qualities, I think, start to start to appear. Um, but I will see it at the same time. You need to be quite a cynic uh, to do that, and I, I can understand that people not perhaps wanting to embrace that cynicism or wanting to embrace that negativity on the things that are being portrayed. One more quick thing. Um, I, I know I'm not at, may not be as naturally cynical as Zach, but despite that, I think it's easy to ask those hard questions, and I think it is much much harder to answer them. And I think if all you're doing is raising these questions that are impossible to answer in an easy way, then to me it it feels like an excuse to depict horrible things on screen. Well, Christian, isn't that kind of limiting? If if the point of a story is to allow an audience to make up their own minds on an issue and you tell them here's my answer isn't that kind of limiting to the point of your movie to make an audience to I, yes. force an audience to come up with their own ideas yes it is limiting and i don't think it needs a definitive answer i just think it needs to do more than ask the question and i think all it does is ask the question okay i guess that's a fundamental difference then on, on our opinions on films the film i am fine with a movie being a question mark without an answer i'm fine with that yeah. because it means that Albert you have Hitchcock to something to it <laughs> yes <laughs> all right well we can go on to the shining now i'm good we yes. don't have to talk about the yeah our final movie yeah. was the shining um which might i don't know maybe one of kubrick's most normal movies um yeah despite the fact that it's still very long and still a very unique movie uh yeah. so what did you guys think of the shining the shining is very iconic uh and i think it's iconic for a lot of the same ways a lot of kubrick movies are um, definitely a lot of conflicts of interest in a philosophical sense. Um, a lot of kind of contrasting character traits when it comes to Jack's character. Um, and a lot of reflections of Stephen King's 
personal dealings um, in, in it as well, um, that Kubrick definitely wanted to make sure we're in there, like alcoholism and having trouble keep getting ideas going and artist things I don't care about. But, but anyway, um, I think it's, it's a really great thing uh, thinking kind of slasher film i feel like I, I i really want to compare this a lot to amityville horror because amityville horror definitely kind of uses this or i should say this uses that kind of premise but really amityville horror kind of starts with that intrigue and then kind of turns into a regular run-of-the-mill thriller slasher thingy um with some little generic drama in between this is pretty much defined by Jack Nicholson's performance in a lot of senses, um, and Duvall's performance as well, for sure. Um, I think that the, 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 the scenes that are known to be iconic, Here's Johnny, is like one of, if not the most iconic film scene ever. Um, and I think it's pretty... I think it's pretty deserving of that. I think that the the awkwardness and the weird, unexplained happenings that happen are, are very... Make, make uh, Kubrick... Uh, come across as very self-aware of what he's doing and very self-aware of the the questions that people have to pose about certain things like for example the the red room thing doesn't need to be you know radically explained it's just like a side thing because it's cool stylistically and it works perfectly fine totally and the same thing with the blood rushing and things like that and i just think I just think those are wonderful stylistic choices. The regular Kubrick wide shots and follow shots and things like that, I think work tremendously in the hotel environment. That makes no sense as we talked about <laughs> physically. Um, but I think it's just, it, it's a magnificent film and the, the climax is very appropriate. And I think that May's scene definitely is like the most thrilling scene probably with Jack. Um, but Jack Nicholson and Duvall just like looking at each other, her being so helpless and trying to be like, I'm, I'm trying to like you know, being really intelligent trying to figure out how to get out of these situations but she's just so screwed and and jack's like well i'm coming to get you like the whole time and yeah and that's just a unique nothing has ever been shown like that before and anything it's tried to replicate it can't even come close so five out of five uh, there's very little i would change about this yeah it's great <laughs> four out of five uh yeah i don't really you know it's very good Go watch it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I will kind of agree with Christian here. I think everything that can be said about The Shining has sort of already been said. Uh, it's a great horror Welcome. film. It's it's probably the best Stephen King adaptation, uh, or at the very least, one of the top ten best. Um, and, uh, and he hates it. Great performances, great direction. Yeah. Um, it's it's a fantastic movie. Five out of five for me. Uh, so right out. Uh... I forget the order that our segments come in. So let's just move on to the Magical Cinema Tour. Uh, yeah. That bus is still a-rolling. Christian, what have you been watching? Well, today I watched Jules and Jim, uh, directed by Francois Truffaut uh, from 1962, <laughs> uh, starring Jean Moreau as Catherine, who I first saw in Bay of Angels, one of Jacques Demy's films, um, and she's terrific in this. But uh, this is kind of a bizarre film from a pacing standpoint. It's um, th there's a lot of voiceover narration, but it comes at you at like super fast. Even accounting for the fact that I guess the French language is is generally spoken faster than English, it just it just bang. You better be reading those subtitles, man, or you're gonna <laughs> miss stuff. Um, it, <laughs> yes, precisely. Um, but these leads are terrific, and there's there's a lot of uh, really compelling work about relationships uh romantic and otherwise between people and what happens when you choose the wrong person uh and and you're stuck with that person because you spent years with them and there's just kind of no way of going back socially kind of like uh cookie pocket no okay <laughs> sorry uh. it was there i had to take it um no, this is a great film. I gave it a four out of five. I think uh, you have to tolerate the style of it a little bit, but um, uh, it's really uh, where, the, where there's romantic strife. Uh, Jules and Jim are such close friends that they can literally fight on the opposite side of World War One and still be friends about it and not even talk about it. It, should, it sounds ridiculous, but <laughs> what I'm trying to say here is uh, there's there's nice juxtaposition. There's there's a lot of interesting work going on between characters and if you're someone who likes more talkative um, interpersonal movies then then you'll like this nice. okay 
Well, uh, there aren't many guns in the Curse of Frankenstein, but I'm gonna I'm gonna speed run this. I'm gonna speed Mitchell run this. Talk about. No, no, I'm gonna speed run this right now. He doesn't Double, even need the timer. I don't even need the timer. Uh, I believe right. the, 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 the double barrel pistol that uh, Cushing uses at the end is a uh, howdah pistol. Um, it was used by the British Empire for a while as kind of like a backup pistol in case they were attacked by lions or tigers or something. <laughs> lions and tigers and bears. Um, I don't know how that would have worked out if you shot it. Uh, probably not going to work out too well. But um, yeah, that's pretty much all it was used for, like 19th century stuff. Um, and then the double barrel shotgun, I have no idea what that is. It could be a million different things. Um, it, it looks really cool when he shoots him in the head with it and his head like kind of like explodes in red and that looks really awesome, but that's probably not how that actually happened. In fact, I think like parts of his body would probably be torn off and that, that would look cool. But anyway, that's it. Wow. Okay. This has been Mitchell's munitions. 42 seconds. Um, right. Oh, so now then it is time to move on to the rundown, our oldest and most uh, recurring segment. <laughs> Zach says begrudgingly. <laughs> okay, like here we one. go. It is a good one. Um, largely thanks to Mitchell because I had very little to add to this Aww. one. But uh, uh, words, uh, monsters, and scientists, and numbers from Zach's orifices. <laughs> Mitchell, are you ready? My orifice is ready and prepared, sir. Okay, three, two, one, go. Intro exposition. Uh, two out of five. Doge alive. Three out of five. Cushing and Lee. Uh, four out of five. Valerie Gaunt as Justine. Uh, three out of five. Peter Stocks. Three out of five. Broken Railings. Four out of five. Sideburns again. Uh, three out of five. The Laboratory Set. Four out of five. Zach Ergus as Young Victor. <laughs> four out of five. Knew that was coming. Chaos Theory. Uh, four out of five. Hair Baron and Dark Corners. Uh, four out of five. School of Wisdom and Understanding. Three out of five. Serving my cousin, but in a different way. Uh, two out of five. Professor Big Brain. Three out of five. Seeking Obscure Truths in Stuffy Rooms. Uh, three out of five. Asking about advanced physics. Three out of five. Paul the Giga Chad. Uh, three out of five. <laughs> Guillotines. Uh, four out of five. Not answering the coffee question. Uh, three out of five. Elizabeth. Uh, four out of five. A gibbet. Three out of five. <laughs> Arranged marriages. Uh, two out of five. Needing dual op- operation. Three out of five. Not giving him a sedative. Uh, three out of five. Victor murking everything that's a problem. Uh, four out of five. Woo, two seconds to spare. When I don't have a connection delay, who boy are we on? Okay. Christian, um, that was uh, Vic, that was a young Frankenstein reference, and you ruined it. I hate you. It was I set a give, am... not set a okay. div. Okay, okay, all right, all right. Terribly sorry. Now, uh, I have shamelessly overrun already, so Mitchell, what are we talking about next time, and be concise. We are unshamelessly talking about The Sound of Music, musical drama thingy, Robert Wise, 1965. Everybody knows about it. It's better than West Side Story. I just said that. No, it's not. It is absolutely not. Okay, okay, okay. We're going to find out if I'm kidding or not. Yay! Gentlemen, you can't fight right now. We can't get away from World War II, guys. Okay, and we'll go back next episode on Cookie Pocket. This podcast is about film. Until then, au revoir.